Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll discuss the testimonies of the witnesses we covered on this past week's episodes, including those of Joanne Fiedler, Nathan De Bruin, and Jacob Marshall. My conversation with Abby Smith is coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thanks as always for joining us. Hi, Carrie. Good to be back. So we began our week with the testimony of Joanne Fiedler. What did you make of her as a witness? In short, she seemed to come from central casting. I have to tell you that the most recent recordings from trial really made me feel like I was there. You're doing an amazing job with these podcasts because you get the whole feel of it. And she was one of those people who, when she testified, her manner just sort of revealed who she fundamentally was. She's picked a team. She's a gun-carrying broad and proud of it. And does she help Kyle Rittenhouse? Sure, because I think it's helpful that she's female and that she went there to the car source lots armed. And of course, the critically important testimony she offers is Kyle Rittenhouse saying, I had to shoot him. And I still remain a little bewildered by how the defense is able to get those statements in. Last time or the time before, I think I talked about hearsay. It's perfectly kosher for the prosecution to elicit from their witnesses because they are the party opponent of the defendant, of the accused. Perfectly kosher, admissible to get any statements from the defendant. But the defense doesn't have that kind of latitude for their own client. They can't call people to offer up his statements. That's hearsay. So it's sort of interesting. It's pretty fundamental. It's probably on nearly every bar-related evidence question. But be that as it may, that was the thing that was critically important. It wasn't all the rest of her. She added a little character to the to the case. She seems to me to have been a character. But what was critically important was that statement consistent with self-defense, that he had to shoot. 
She also offered some color regarding Joseph Rosenbaum. She did. You know, I thought the prosecution did a decent job of walking that back a bit. But yes, she made him, you know, out to be a bad guy, you know, an ill-tempered, out-of-control bad guy. She wouldn't admit that he was like a babbling idiot. But in truth, she paid him no mind, it seems to me. And the prosecution kind of just, just walked it back a little bit. But, you know, on balance, the defense's case has been pretty consistent. Their narrative, consistent. Prosecution feels like they're ducking and covering and pivoting and the opposite of seamless. On cross-examination, Binger seemed to spend a lot of time focused on Fiedler's bias. Do you think that was wise? Do you think there was any method to that strategy? Well, he had to. And that's a conventional aspect of every cross-examination. The question of motive and bias are rife in cross-examination, you know, to be uncovered. And you do that so that the witness has a bit less credibility. So I think he had to. And wasn't bad about that, you know, that she called Kyle Rittenhouse's mother and said something to the effect of hang in there. I mean, I think the prosecution has to say that she's on a team. And so whatever testimony she presents is colored by her own bias. It, You know, do I think in the end that's going to persuade the jury well, clearly didn't, but I don't think there was anything wrong with that. Why do you think Binger made great fanfare of Fiedler carrying a pistol when everyone else around her was carrying semi-automatic rifles? Okay, so I think his point was it wasn't necessary to be armed to the gills. And here's a person who went with no intention of discharging a firearm. She went with a small firearm as deterrence, in her words. That's what she kept calling it. Here is where, frankly the skills of trial advocacy were underwhelming by the prosecution. And I hate to sound so teacherly about this, but cross-examination is an examination of witnesses that's conducted in short leading questions. The answers ought to be yes or no. Frankly, they're not questions at all. They're assertions of fact, usually one fact per question. In short, that's the method of cross-examination, you know, about which every prospective practicing trial lawyer is taught. The prosecution just couldn't seem to do that. You know, and what's the point of that kind of questioning? The point is that you exercise control over the witnesses so that you can make points through the other team's people. And they kept asking these open-ended questions. And that was especially vivid in the discussion of an AR-15 versus a pistol. He needed to tell her in short assertions so that the jury would understand the point and she wouldn't be able to kind of Get, you know, grab back the conversation and try to suggest a firearm is a firearm. Well, you know, it seemed to me that he was sort of being condescending about the fact that she had this little bitty pistol when all these other guys had these big guns as if she wasn't serious in some way. If his intention was to say, well, she was the more reasonable one in the group because she just armed herself with enough of a deterrent without bringing like this overwhelming firepower. But the way he was asking the questions actually felt like he was doing the opposite. I think it's because of the form of the questions. I didn't take it that way, but that's interesting that you did. That's the art part of trial lawyering. It's art, not science. And, you know, you're a juror. I'm a juror. And it's hitting us both differently, which is really interesting. I think he was attempting to comport with the prosecution theory that she didn't feel the need to kill anybody, that she didn't come with the kind of ammunition that could so easily kill and wound many people. You know, he needed to make the point more crisply. 
did you think it was somehow sort of sexist? Like, oh, she's this woman who shows up and carrying a little pistol? I didn't know what he was doing, but it did seem condescending and perhaps sexist. But certainly he wasn't propping her up to be kind of the model of safety, restraint and responsibility if that was his intention. Correct. And if that was his intention. So the other thing about the form of cross-examination, don't go at the witness first, suggesting the witness has bias or motive or is on one team or, or has already made up their mind, because then that's the lens through which you're asking the jury to regard the testimony. If there's some positive stuff you want to pull from the witness, pull it from the witness first, get those points made. So I just think he needed to spend less time, but be crisper. You carried pistol. That's a firearm, but you had no intention of discharging it. You were using it because you thought it made a point to people, that it was more important that you be seen with a gun in hand. And meanwhile, I was a pistol, right? It wasn't an AR-15. It wasn't a semi-automatic weapon. And then leave it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In the second part of our conversation, Abby and I discuss the other witness testimonies we examined this week, beginning with photojournalist Nathan De Bruin. Moving on to the testimony of Nathan De Bruin, what did you make of him and why do you think the defense called him? I think it called De Bruin for a couple of different reasons. First of all, he was a kind of clean cut, all American looking guy in a shirt and tie and jacket, called himself a photojournalist and who had a kind of down-to-earth Midwestern likability about him. I think he told the story of the chaos of the evening well. And mostly, though, I think he painted a very unflattering picture of the state of law enforcement and in particular of Mr. Binger. Must have been an uncomfortable, slightly embarrassing moment for Mr. Binger. You point out in the you know, audio part of the trial, that's why his colleague had to do the cross-examination. Well, before we get to that, with respect to the defense intentions in calling him, I thought he painted about as comprehensive and detailed a chronology of the mayhem and the violence and the intensity of the rioting in Kenosha on the 25th as anyone who has testified so far. And I think that he tied the defense team's boogeyman Joseph Rosenbaum into all of it. To me, that was his value to them as a witness, besides the embarrassment to the prosecution. Yeah, I think that's astute. I think both things were contributions to the defense. So let's talk about the prosecution's meeting with De Bruin and his account of what they asked him to do. What did you make of that? What did you make of the way the defense set it up? And what did you make of the way that Prosecutor James Krause tried to rebut that? The defense set it up well. This was a witness who was clearly well prepared. The prosecution had to have known some of this, but maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe they were surprised by it. I thought it was a red herring. I thought it was neither here nor there. And the prosecution should have either not dignified it 
or if they're going to swat it down, they should have done it quickly and effectively. And they did not do it either. It ended up taking over the cross-examination. Here's the thing. When investigators, whether they're law enforcement investigators or private criminal defense investigators, approach witnesses, conduct a Q&A, the aim is to get a statement. The brass ring is to get a written signed statement by a witness. And Oral statement will do, especially if you have a witness who can testify to it, meaning a lawyer should always go with an investigator if a lawyer is going to take part in those sorts of you know questioning sessions. But conventionally, it becomes almost a rote thing at the end of one such session with a witness. You'll say, is there anything you want to add or take away from your statement? You let the witness read the statement. You let them make corrections. But you're always just as part of your rap with them. You're asking whether there's anything you want to add or change or what have you. There's nothing insidious or nefarious about that. How could what Binger have done be somehow insidious when the defense did a similar thing? And then the defense, for some reason, they didn't need to redirect on that either, but they did. Apparently they wanted to suggest that there was a different tone or something that the defense was using when they asked for the witness to you know, offer up any changes. It was a head scratcher for me. What did you make of it, Carrie? I thought that Krauss was making some headway in asking the questions about how was your meeting with Mark Richards any different from your meeting with Prosecutor Binger, where you agreed to add to your statement in that meeting, but you declined to do so with Binger. But I thought Krauss got like tangled up in his own questioning. And I think that often happens with both him and Binger. And so at the end of the day, I thought it was really bad for the prosecution because they didn't blunt it. And as you say, they let it dominate a good part of the cross-examination. Well, just even, you know, you're parroting back what he said. How was this any different from what you said to defense counsel? No, you don't ask that question on cross-examination. You're ceding all control to the witness. So the witness could say, well, it really felt different to me. You know, it was a very different thing. I felt that Binger was trying to get me to do something that was contrary to the truth or my principles or my integrity. I mean, why would you ask a how question like that? Why not just point out, that's interesting, sir, because you actually met with the defense counsel and gave them a statement and made some changes to that statement, correct? It's a yes or no question. You just point it out. You don't give the witness a chance to dissemble and, you know, offer up their perspective. Well, we ended the week with a trio of witnesses. We had Luca Zanin, we had Jacob Marshall, and we had Sam Kindry come back to the stand. Zanin seems to have been there to introduce his stepdaughter's video and to add some color to the violence of the evening. What did you make of Zanin's testimony, Abby? He's a stepdad. He happens to have gone down there with his stepdaughter who was interested. He was concerned. I mean, he said, this is my hometown and this was going on. It was a nice backdrop, some nice shading to humanize the heroics of Kyle Rittenhouse at all, I thought. I thought that was the point, was to say, look, you know, this was really disturbing and we were grateful for, you know, people stopping. We couldn't believe what was happening in our town. Yeah, I agree. I wasn't sure why that witness was up there honestly, but I thought he did no harm. The Jacob Marshall testimony was probably, in my view, the only win so far for the prosecution. I couldn't agree with you more. I was really eager to talk about this witness because I actually kind of relaxed and was enjoying myself rather than clutching my gut whenever the prosecution took a turn at a witness. That was a peculiar choice 
by the defense. They didn't need him. What he does in kind of trial advocacy language is he completes the impeachment of Grosskreutz. So the defense on cross-examination of Grosskreutz confronted him with the statements of his roommate on social media that he said, you know, he should have killed the guy. And Grosskreutz said, no, I didn't say that. I would never say that. And they pointed, the defense pointed out, well, that was your roommate, your good friend. Yes, that's true. I didn't say it. So the defense wanted to complete that impeachment by showing that there was evidence that he did say it. But they were calling a witness who they had to have known was not going to be their witness. They had to have talked to him. If they didn't talk to him, that's really bad lawyering. And if they did talk to him, I'm not sure why they made that strategic calculation. They did not need him. They had dirtied up Grosskreutz enough. He was good. He was good. He was a nice guy. Well, they were locked into calling him because they represented when they brought in that statement, you know, that was alleged to have been said by Gage Grosskreutz on Jacob Marshall's Facebook page. They made a commitment. They made a representation that they were going to be calling the person who made that statement, who said Grosskreutz said it in order to get past hearsay when they were asking Grosskreutz about it. So they sort of locked themselves into calling Marshall. Yeah, they didn't have to, though. I mean, I hear you. And usually when you set it up that way, you know, you're 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 setting it up for the for another witness. But they didn't have to. They had a good faith basis for cross-examining Grosskreutz that way. When it turns out that his roommate is not going to back up what the defense wants, you don't have to call them. The judge would have just excluded that part of Grosskreutz's testimony then. Maybe so, but you can't unring a bell. The jury's heard it. Right. And maybe that should have been their strategy, which was to say that they were going to call Marshall and then not call him and then have the judge strike that part of the testimony, even though the jury heard it. But I think that they were just fulfilling their ethical responsibility in calling Marshall. They said they were going to do it and they did it. But whether strategically they needed to go into that statement by Grosskreutz, that's a different question. Question. But once they went into that statement, they really, at least on professional responsibility and ethical grounds, had to call Marshall. I don't think so. I think I disagree with you there, Carrie. I don't think there's an ethical requirement that they call that witness to finish up what they did. I think there has to be a good faith basis. And the defense has given a lot of leeway under the rules of professional conduct. I think they had every intention at that moment to call that witness and then subsequently learned that it wasn't going to be in the interests of their client. They would have had to have approached the judge and said, judge, we've decided not to call this witness. At the time, we assured the court that we would. We didn't have all the information we have now, and we're perfectly prepared for you to strike that testimony. I mean, that's what they would have done. I don't think there's anything unethical about that. One other thing about that witness, he really humanized Gage Grosskreutz. And together with a couple of other people who are connected to Rosenbaum and Huber, He did a lovely job when he said he went to see his friend at the hospital and he wept. He thought he was going to lose him. He thought he was going to die. And when he said, you know, what I wrote on that social media post reflected my emotions about how I felt, I thought that was pretty powerful testimony. It was one more voice making Gage Grosskreutz out to be a good guy, a legitimate medic, and a legitimate victim. Agreed. Okay, our final witness of the week is the reprise testimony of Sam Kindry. What did you make of Sam? I didn't get it. Just felt like kind of a mess to me. Help me understand why you think he was called. I think that they just wanted to impeach 
his testimony and the brother's testimony that Kyle Rittenhouse, Nick Smith, that none of those people were invited by the Kindries, that they kind of just showed up out of thin air. And the way that they tried to do that was through his testimony about how much money they lost, his awareness of the loss, his devastation. In the wake of having Nick Smith on the stand, he looked pretty foolish. Was it necessary? Probably not. But I don't think it hurt them at all. No, it didn't hurt them, but I appreciate you explaining it to me. I bet at least a couple of jurors were bewildered as I was. That's too abstract for me. I didn't make that link. I thought the point was to talk about how great the devastation was and that this was huge. It's a huge amount of money, a huge amount of loss to get the jurors kind of concerned about all of the destruction to their town in general. But I didn't get the link that that you know, was supposed to be somehow consistent with them wanting Rittenhouse and Fiedler and the gang to come with arms. Well, I also think my sense of this is fed by what I remember from the news at the time, which was that mainstream media outlets, progressives made a lot of hay over the fact that the owners of the car source store denied having invited Rittenhouse to protect the property. And I think Sharafasi was trying to point out that these guys had lost a lot of money and that they had this former employee, Nick Smith, who they knew knew his way around guns and probably had a posse of guys who did so as well and that they invited him down there. So I think that the defense was partly influenced by some of the news reports that gave credence to the statement by Kindry that they didn't invite Kyle Rittenhouse and his cohort down there and they were trying to discredit him. Okay. I actually think it's neither here nor there. I think at this point in the case, the way it's played out, it doesn't really matter whether Kyle Rittenhouse was explicitly invited. You know, he's been, to my mind, successfully portrayed as somebody who out of a sense of good citizenship went there. I just don't think it matters whether they were invited or not. Right. Well, Abby, next week, we have the beginning of Kyle Rittenhouse's testimony. All right. I'm so excited. As am I. And I'm looking forward to having you back at the end of the week to talk about the first tranche of that testimony. Me too. I can't wait to hear from the actual guy himself. But I have to tell you, I think it would be a deep discussion between defense counsel as to whether they need him or whether they have enough to get a not guilty, whether they haven't stirred up enough reasonable doubt. I mean, obviously they're calling him, but I hope they wrestled over it because it was not necessary. There are some cases where you just have to call your client. This case went in so badly for the prosecution. I just hope there was a discussion. I remember there being press about the way that they came to that decision after the trial. And perhaps when we get to the end of Rittenhouse's testimony, we can review some of those reports and some of Mark Richards and Corey Sharofsky's statements about how they went about the process of deciding whether to call Rittenhouse. Great. I'd, I'd love to hear that. That'll be fun to talk about. Fantastic. All right, Abby, have a great week. Okay, you too. See you, Carrie. That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we begin our look at the testimony of defendant Kyle Rittenhouse. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.